Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. Also streaming worldwide at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 354. Today's topic is an ode to water. So why are we talking about water on the Climate Report? Water is an important part of climate. When we talk about climate change, we typically refer to rising temperatures as a result of atmospheric CO2, but climate is not just about temperatures. If the amount of rainfall goes up or down, that's a change in climate. If rainfall becomes less frequent, that's a change in climate. If when it does rain, you get heavier downpours, that's a change in climate. If winds are stronger because there are fewer trees, that's a change in climate. Desertification represents a change in climate. Aridification, meaning becoming drier, represents a change in climate. So when we talk about climate, we should think in terms not only of hot or cold, but wet or dry, as well as the frequency and duration of rain events and the total amount of precipitation. So let's talk about water in relation to climate. Part one, fun facts about water. The chemical formula for water is H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. It's transparent, it's wet, it's cold. That's good because it cools us off. It comes in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. It's the main component of the fluids of all known living organisms and is vital for all known forms of life. Water covers about 71% of the, the Earth's surface. Water moves continually through the water cycle of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation, and also transpiration is an important part of that water cycle. That's when trees push water up through their tissues and out through their leaves. When we go swimming or diving, we're playing in the liquid water. When we snow ski or go ice skating or sledding, we're skidding across frozen water. When we go boating or water skiing, we're skidding across liquid water. In the Christian religion, the rite of baptism involves water and symbolizes death and rebirth. In Judaism, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea symbolizes a transition from bondage into freedom. In Islam, water symbolizes wisdom and life. In Buddhism, water symbolizes calmness and serenity. In Hinduism, water is believed to hold purifying and cleansing powers. In animism, water is seen as something that connects others and creates relationships. In our culture, someone having a crisis is said to lose their water. When a baby's on the way, the water is said to break. How you perceive a partially filled glass of water is a test of whether you're dark and gloomy or bright, cheery, and sunny. Health and safety are thought to depend on staying hydrated. And around the world, the universal sign of hospitality is to offer someone a drink. So water surrounds us and is surrounded by 
meaning, and significance. Water is vital to everything we do on planet Earth. We need it for our bodies, we need it to grow our food, we need it to support the living things on which we depend, and which arguably have their own independent right to exist and thrive and flourish in a world infused with life-giving water. We have every reason to respect water, to organize our lives and our affairs around the proper stewardship of water. We have within our grasp the means by which living things and living systems might have the water they need. And yet, and yet, we live in a thirsty world. Part 2. Our Thirsty World Even in Kentucky, which gets on average 46 inches of rain per year, I look around me and I see both the causes and effects of desiccation. Desiccation means drying out. Our landscapes are drying out. Our farms are drying out. Our forests are drying out. And when forests dry out, they burn much more easily. So why are our farms, forests, and landscapes drying out? Our farms, forests, and landscapes are drying out because we are eliminating the structures and mechanisms that hold water. The structures and mechanisms that hold water include plant matter, organic matter, and soil. Everywhere we go, everywhere thing you see, all of our traditions, all of our norms require us to eliminate plant matter and eliminate organic matter and degrade the soil. All of these things, the plant matter, the organic matter, and the soil are reservoirs for water. If you take away the reservoir for water, then it, you're getting rid of the water that was there and you're removing the mechanism whereby that landscape might retain, absorb and retain the rain that does fall. So when we eliminate plant matter, we're eliminating a reservoir of water. Deforestation is one way that we eliminate plant matter. There's a time to cut down a tree. Moderation in all things, right? But we do not cut down a moderate number of trees. As we speak, we're chewing up our forests, especially in the American South, but all over the world. We're chewing up our forests, turning them into wood pellets, sending them to Europe, burning them as fuel, and calling that renewable. It's not sensible, it's not rational, it's not moderate, it's not renewable, it's not clean, but that's what we're doing on a large scale. Weeding is another way that we eliminate plant matter. There's a time to pull a weed, but we don't do a moderate amount of weeding. When we pull too many weeds, when we spray too many weeds, we're eliminating a reservoir of water and we're uh, eliminating a, a mechanism that would otherwise hold water. The plant itself holds water, plus the plant roots tend to enrich the soil and make the soil into a sponge that can hold water when it does rain. Similarly, mowing is another way that we eliminate plant matter, which is a reservoir of water. There's a time to mow, I guess, 
but we do not do a moderate amount of mowing. Another way that we eliminate reservoirs of water is in what we do to the soil. Healthy soil is about 40% empty spaces, empty spaces that are filled with either water or air. These are called pore spaces. Healthy soil is like a sponge that soaks up rain and holds, holds the water for later use. And for the benefit of plants, animals, fungi, and the whole soil ecosystem. But we do all the wrong things to the soil to eliminate this soil structure and destroy its ability to act like a sponge. Mainly what we do wrong to the soil is we till, we use chemical fertilizers, and we use biocides such as herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. So first we till too much. Maybe there's a time to till, I guess. I know some good you know, smart people that do some tilling. But mainly we till indiscriminately, we till too deep, we till too often, and we just don't give the soil a chance to grow and to become that rich, healthy sponge that absorbs water and also houses this soil food web that is, you know, it's an ecosystem that represents the life underneath the ground and that life underneath the ground if we allow it to will deliver nutrients to the plants to make the plants more resilient and to make the plants more nutritious. When we till we destroy the structure of the soil. We, we might as well go into a city and use bombs or bulldozers or cranes and wrecking balls to flatten the city and then act surprised when the next day the people of the city are not back to normal, back to business as usual. Another way we destroy the soil structure and take the soil out of play as a way, as a, as a sponge that can hold water, is we use chemical fertilizers. Chemical fertilizers are made of salts. You know, put salt on a slug, put salt on a worm, and, and what happens? It shrivels up and it dies because it sucks the water out of the slug or the worm. And it's the same thing with every living thing underneath the soil. If you put salt on it, it's going to either get sick or die. That's what happens when we use chemical fertilizers. So how else do we cause our landscapes to dry out? We design for drainage. We use concrete storm drains and ditches to get rid of the water as quickly as we can. We need to be holding on to that water. Why are we getting rid of water? Why are we treating water as waste? Why, why are we treating water as a nuisance? Why are we not treating water as a resource? Why are we using all of these fossil fuels to transport water from far away and then use more you know, fossil fuels at least we're using a lot of resources to treat stormwater as a nuisance and build concrete ditches to get rid of the water as quickly as we can. What we should be doing is designing our landscapes to hold as much water as possible with plant matter, with organic matter, with healthy soils, and also to the extent that we have a slope where water is going to drain off quickly, we should be slowing down the 
runoff. Slow down the pro downhill progress of the water using things like, you know, swales on contour, using little bitty check dams, just to slow the progress of the water because there's no better use of water than keeping it on the landscape where it falls. We've had a dry summer in Kentucky, but it's been much drier than it needs to be because we don't hold on to our rainwater. We need to hold on our, to our rainwater with trees, with plants, with organic matter, with uh, healthy soil, with, and with, uh, you know, by designing our contours to, and designing our landscapes to hold on to the water that we get instead of, you know, mindlessly and aggressively getting rid of it and sending it downstream, sending our flood and sending our pollution downstream. There's no reason to do that. The only people that benefit from it are these big companies that build the infrastructure and manage the infrastructure, the stormwater infrastructure, etc. So what's the result of all this? What's the result of getting rid of rainwater when we should be holding on to rainwater? Well, one result of this is that we are rapidly losing fresh water worldwide. So fresh water is 3% of water worldwide is fresh water. Fresh water is what we have on land. Fresh water is contained in plants. Fresh water is even contained in animals, including people. Fresh water is contained within fungi. It's contained within our soils. So fresh water is what we can use. Fresh water is what we can drink and we're losing a measurable amount of it every year. I will tell you the amount in just a minute, but we are losing on a net basis a measurable amount of rainwater every year, a measurable amount of fresh water every year, because some of it evaporates, some of it flows into the streams and rivers, some of it comes back, but on balance, we're losing it to evaporation and we're losing it to runoff, not enough of it is coming back to replace what we carelessly get rid of. We could reverse this trend, but we are losing, here's the number, 760 cubic kilometers. So think of a cubic mile and a cubic kilometer is a little bit smaller than that. Another way of thinking about a cubic kilometer is it's a billion cubic meters. A meter is about the same as a yard. So think of a cubic yard and think of a billion of those and then 760 times that. That's how much fresh water we're losing every year. Another way of thinking about this, have you ever been to Chicago? Have you ever been along Lakeshore Drive? Have you ever been in Chicago where you look out and you see this thing that looks like an ocean except it's a lake? Which lake is that? Which one of the Great Lakes is that? That's Lake Michigan. If you take Lake Michigan and divide it by seven, that's just about equal to this 760 billion cubic meters I'm talking about. So we're losing the equivalent of a Lake Michigan in freshwater every seven years. Who's the genius that decided that we weren't going to pay any attention to this whatsoever? This is part of the reason that there's more 
water in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas. This is part of the reason that the oceans are rising to the extent of maybe one to two millimeters per year. No, I'm not saying it's the whole reason, I'm saying it's part of the reason. So can we talk about how to slow down and reverse this rapid loss of fresh water? The good news is that we can do our part where we live because the solution to this is to harvest rainwater. The solution to this is to design our own landscapes, our own local parks, so that they don't get rid of rainwater, but rather hold on to it. The good news is that we can do our part where we live. Which brings us to part three, calls to action, what we can do. The number one call to action and the overarching concept in all this is to capture the rain where it falls. Make your landscape into a sponge. Understand the power of water. Understand that every living thing needs to drink. And this includes all of the living things within the soil that make the soil abundant, fertile, and able to be the medium in which plants can grow. So because we understand the power of water, we design for hydration. We're not designing for drainage. We're not putting in drains except where we absolutely have to. We also want to allow plants to grow. We don't want to cut too much or weed too much or mow too much because those plants are wanting to grow and they're wanting to be a receptacle or a sponge for the rain that does fall. We're going to leave behind this idea that we're always a good citizen when we cut and mow and spray. That is no longer the definition of good citizenship. We want to let trees grow. We want to designate no mow zones. We want to mark them off so that it looks tasteful, but we want to say, here's an area of my yard that is where things can grow. Here's a no mow zone, and therefore, every acre is going to produce hundreds of new trees every year. Most of them will be native trees. They will be healthy. They will grow very well because they have not undergone the trauma of being raised in a nursery or the trauma of being transplanted. And sometimes transplanted trees do just fine. But if a tree volunteers and plants itself, you know it's at least it got past the germination stage without anybody's help. Plus, that volunteer tree in, uh, is connected to a mother tree. It has a relationship with that environment by the virtue of the fact that it uh, planted itself and germinated and sprouted naturally. So we want to invite trees to plant themselves for fun and for free. As opposed to hauling in these back-breaking root balls of nursery trees that were grown without any particular connection to that natural environment. It's just a lot of time, money, effort, and brain power being expended needlessly. 
I can show you churches and parks where, hey, we planted 10 trees here. When I'm looking at where these 10 trees are planted and you're planting all these trees and then you're mowing around the trees. And if you would designate that as a no mow area, then trees would germinate and would plant themselves, would sprout and germinate for free. No time, no effort, no money, no labor. Plus, the volunteer trees are, on average, they're going to be far healthier than nursery-grown trees. The next call to action is to grow healthy soil. So when it comes to growing healthy soil, the three things to not do, you know, avoid tillage. You're just breaking up all the structure of the soil. You're destroying the capacity of the soil to absorb water. You're destroying the capacity of the soil to house that living food web, the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods that constitute that underground ecosystem that makes the soil what it is. By the way, there's a whole heck of a lot of carbon that can be stored in that underground ecosystem, but it's only going to happen if the underground, if the soil is alive. Healthy soil is alive with innumerable living things. And those living things are all made of carbon and water. The more living things and the more diverse, complex ecosystem that you have with all those living things, the more carbon you're going to have and the more water you're going to have. We need to take the carbon out of the air and put it into the ground. We need to take the water out of the air and put it into the ground because there's too much water in the air, especially way up there. We want to avoid chemical fertilizers because for one thing, they short circuit the plant's natural ability to acquire whatever it is you're putting in there. You know, the chemical fertilizers have nitrogen, but they short circuit the plant's natural ability to gather nitrogen from the, the soil and from the soil organisms. Organic, usable, plant available nitrogen is in the soil but the plant needs to not be short-circuited with the chemical nitrogen fertilizer. We need to avoid pesticides such as herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. The word root side, C-I-D-E, means kill. They're designed to kill a target species, but they don't just stop at the target species. If you kill, if you have an insecticide, it's not just going to kill the insect that you're concerned about. It's going to kill bees and butterflies. It's also going to kill beneficial insects such as ladybugs and praying mantises. So avoid the sides, avoid the biocides. So those are the three don'ts, things to don't do if you want healthy soil. And the three things to do if you want healthy soil is Number one, always have living roots in the ground. Don't let the soil be bare. Let, uh, you know, understand the value of plants, including weeds. Don't weed excessively. Let those living roots stay in the ground because those living roots, the, the plant is taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turning it into sugars and then excreting or exuding those sugars out of its roots. And when it does that, it starts the whole food web in process. 
and it thereby stores carbon in the ground. So it stores carbon in the ground. It's jump-starting the soil food web. So acknowledge the value of weeds. Weeds are plants. Plants enrich the soil, and the more diversity, the better. Give you an example of a weed in my garden that turned out to be a good thing. So this summer I had Bermuda grass in my garden. Oh no, Bermuda grass. Well, you can understand if there's Bermuda grass because it used to be a lawn. And even when you, when you put wood chips on top of the lawn for mulch, many of the things are going to continue to grow up through them, including violets, including dandelions, which are, you know, good because they inject carbon into the ground and they provide, they do their part to enhance the diversity of the above ground ecosystem and the below ground ecosystem. But I'm like, oh no, Bermuda grass in my garden. So I pulled it just for the heck of it. I knew I wasn't going to win the battle against Bermuda grass, but I pulled it for a while and then I pulled it and then I stopped pulling it. I said, this is a waste of time. And then guess what? The wildflowers I had planted grew up over the Bermuda grass and they didn't kill it. They just subdued it a little bit. So you have this Bermuda grass underneath the wildflowers. It, it's, a, it's above the ground. It's above the wood chips. It's below the wildflowers. It has its place and it's taking its place within a, it's playing nicely with others within a diverse plant community. And I'm like, hey, you know, that Bermuda grass is not such a bad thing. Can't get rid of it anyway. And it got shaded out by the wildflowers. And not only is there no harm done, but that Bermuda grass had its place. It filled a niche. One thing that it does is it's a reservoir of water. You see, all plants transpire water. They take water up from the ground and they emit water vapor. Well, the Bermuda grass is emitting water vapor like everything else. And because it is within a plant community, the, there's, it's like many hands make light work when you have a diverse plant community with each member of the community transpiring water, then there's more kind of more of a windbreak. There's less drying out. There's less desiccation. There's less wind in that particular corner of the world. It's all good. So I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So water is an important part of climate. It's an important part of the analysis and it's an important part of the actions that we can take. And water exists within ecosystems, mainly above ground. It exists mainly within plants, but then, you know, plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, all, uh, you know, all work together. So what I'm saying is water exists within living systems. Water flows through living systems. One of the best things we can do for the climate, not only in uh, the prevention of extreme temperatures, but also in the adaptation to an increasingly chaotic climate, is to preserve and nurture the ecosystems that we have because the ecosystems contain water. Water is a regulator. Water is a moderator. It's a regulator and moderator of temperatures. Also, if you have 
you know, ecosystems with water flowing through them, then you're going to be more likely to get rain and you're going to be more likely to be able to hold on to the rain that you have. Oh, look at the time. That's all for now. See you next time.